John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You are accessing entry 511.PS6928, certificate number 6442, Gadsby. Not the great Gadsby, mind you. That's Gatsby. Gatsby with a T. This is Gadsby. Gadsby. With a D. And it is an American novel from the early 20th century about youth and... Loss. Which came first? And Gatsby changing Gatsby. America in the 20s. Uh, Gatsby. Fitzgerald's Gatsby came first. F. Uh-huh. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. This is the non-great Gatsby <sighs> well. by uh, equally great literary luminary, uh, one-of-a-kind American uh, man of letters, Ernest Vincent Wright. Ernest Vincent Wright. Is he any relation to Norman Vincent Peale? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Is that how, is that like how most names people, work? Like most people, he, he carries the middle name of his forefathers. <laughs> it's like the, the way Koreans uh, do their names, right? That's, except in this case, it's the middle name. They put their the surname patronymic. first. Oh, yeah, like Kim Jong-il, Kim Jong-un. Right. Well, that would be terrible in my case. You know, do you know what my middle name is, John? Vincent? <laughs> yes, Kenneth Vincent Jennings. <laughs> There's Stephen Vincent Benet. There's a lot of great American Vincents. No, my middle name is Wayne, oh, which would mean I'm, right. I'm only descended from serial killers. Right. <laughs> that's the only... Oh, you know, you're actually very closely then related to Kenny Wayne Shepherd. You're Kenny Wayne Jennings. It's true. But what, you don't know who Kenny Wayne Shepherd is. Is Kenny Wayne Shepherd a serial killer? Look at your face. It's like, I have no idea who Kenny Wayne Well, this Wayne is Shepherd a total is. ambush. Like he could be, you know, some, he could be a grand wizard of the KKK. I don't think he is. Although, you know, these days you can never tell. Who is he really? Kenny Wayne Shepherd is one of those child uh, prodigy electric blues children. Who's like a young blonde kid from somewhere, Midwest America somewhere, who had a preternatural ability to play the blues. And he was embraced as, you know, the blues are constantly trying, like jazz, trying to appeal to the youth. And here was this kid, I guess he was 10 years old and had long blonde hair and was like, and like he played with B.B. King and they, they trotted him around as like the future of the blues. So worse than the clan is what you're saying. Well, but then he became like, as happens periodically, a legitimate, excellent musician, and that he still tours. I mean, if you go to KennyWayneShepherd.com, I'm sure you'll see that he's <laughs> playing. And the thing is, he's in his 30s now. He's not a kid anymore. He's just a, a white blues guy. Our listeners, of course, do not have the option to go to KennyWayneShepherd.com. Whatever his website is, it has been derelict and moribund for thousands of years. One of the things that we cannot know is whether or not Kenny Wayne Shepherd is, whether there's a statue of him in every hive in the future or whether he's forgotten the time. But Perhaps I'm, he's been rediscovered. I'm assuming he's been forgotten. It time. would be nice to think that Ernest Vincent Wright were an iconic figure for our listeners, but does, I'm guessing no. Does he merit that status based on Gadsby alone? He has a very small corpus of work. Uh, outside of Gadsby, he wrote a couple novels about fairies, like like actual fairies, like elves flitting around. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested. Uh, I just want to stop you there. That's what you would describe as actual fairies floating around elves rather than like boats that transport cars. I wanted to make it clear. I wasn't using some kind of slur. He wasn't writing about some gay demimond of the 30s. I get it. I get it. Like fairies in the Victorian sense, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I believe in his lifetime, he was best known for a piece of light verse called 
when father carves the duck, which I hope is not a euphemism for anything. <laughs> this is the type of thing that my father read or my, actually my uncle Junius would read things like that at the Thanksgiving dinner table. Early 20th century light verse. Yeah. Like my father carves the duck. And then we'd all uh, roll our eyes. Is it possible that he read this very poem by Ernest Vincent Wright? Here, I'm going to read a little bit of, uh, of his best known work. We all look on with anxious eyes when father carves the duck. And mother almost always sighs when father carves the duck. totally a euphemism. Then all- <laughs> Mother's rolling her eyes again. Put the duck away, dad. <laughs> then all of us prepare to rise and hold our bibs before our eyes. Wow, it's getting worse. Oh, oh, oh no. And be prepared for some surprise when father carves the duck. This is some charming uh, early turn of the century thing, and you've made it dirty now. I'm telling you, I'm going to start saying be, you, to be prepared to be surprised when Father carves the duck. That's your. I'm going to start sending that text to. That's your new sex. Yeah. <laughs> he braces up and grabs a fork whenever he carves a duck, and won't allow his soul to talk until he's carved the duck. The fork is jabbed into the sides across the breast. The knife he slides, while every careful person hides from flying chips of duck. What? He's just not good at carving the duck is, what, is, is the point. I see flying chips of duck, though. I wouldn't say chips. I would have said, you know. Chunks. Chunks, yeah. Maybe the word chunk did not exist in Ernest's day. That's interesting. Maybe not. But I'm, I don't want to talk about his light verse, his doggerel, uh-huh. even though it's at Thanksgiving. You know, that's the poem you want to drag out if you're, if you're John's wacky uncle. From now on. I'm going to make that a family tradition, but please f- future residents, as you eat your duck substitute on whatever your, your harvest or celebration festival is, <laughs> um, please remember our antique funnyings. I would like to picture futurelings eating duck at Thanksgiving, but from an enormous duck, like the future <laughs> ducks are like, like 1200 pounds. It's, size the, of it's a the same duck they were working on last year. <laughs> you're issued a duck when you're born and you just spend your whole life eating one just, duck. Just carving off chips. Yeah. yeah just chip, eating duck, a little chip of a chip chips. of duck. But let's, let's talk about to me, Wright's masterpiece, which is Gadsby mm. with a D. Do you know what the most common letter in the English language is? And if you were to count for some reason, the most common letter in written English. It's a vowel. It's got to be A or E or... It, yeah, it is E. And in fact, in most Western languages that use the Roman alphabet, it's E. There are a few languages where it's A. Uh, Portuguese has more A's than E's. Mm. Polish, Finnish, Icelandic. So there's a few. Czech, I think. Um, but almost all languages that use the Roman alphabet, E is vastly more common than Wh- the other letters. And why? I don't think why is that common at all. It's, it's you know, sometimes a consonant, sometimes a vowel. I, I find that... Very charming. But what I was asking is, <laughs> why is he the most common vowel? If you were to take every word in the dictionary and count it once, it's possible that it would not be, or at least it wouldn't be such a lead. But it, it's it's found in common words. You know, it's it, it's in the, it's in almost all of our pronouns, you know, he and her and they and we. So I think by virtue of, you know, and, and it's in uh, a lot of common prefixes and suffixes. Right. Like pre and, and, Ed. and as. Yeah, yeah. Anything in the past tense is going to have an ed. Many plurals are going to have an ES. Um, so that's just how it happened. In our, and as a result, you know, E is the most common letter in Scrabble. Um, you need to understand letter frequency to, uh, you know, Morse code, for example, is built around letter frequencies like E and T and A. And the common letters are, are the easier ones to tap, right? There's a single dot or mm-hmm. a single dash or mm-hmm. whatever. Whereas, you know, W and X and Y and Z might be. Longer. 42 different dashes and dots. Right. An intricate series <laughs> of dashes and dots. Um, I was always taught to, you could remember the most common letters with the phrase Edda Oin Schurdlu. Are you familiar with Edda Oin Schurdlu? You were taught this when you were taking a Morse code class when you were a kid? Yeah, we were learning to... Did your folks teach you this? <laughs> we grew up on a desert island where we our yacht had been shipwrecked. So, <laughs> and one of us had to man the uh, Morse code station 24-7. So your, the, your monomic was Edda Odd Yehu? <laughs> That sounds like a like an Israeli political party. <laughs> you would leave out the vowels. Uh, Edda odd. It's Edda oin shirdlu. Edda is, oin shirdlu. And the funny thing is, it's not a mnemonic at all because none of those are actual words. Right. Uh, so, so to remember the letters in Edda oin shirdlu, remember the phrase Edda oin shirdlu. Edda oin shirdlu sounds like a woman that lives like in your town who is constantly stirring up trouble with uh, the other the sh- unmarried the women. The Shurdloos are uh, at it again. Edda Oin Shurdloo. Uh, yeah, I guess because it sounds like Edda. Um, 
It's uh, no, I learned it in like books about codes, like for uh, for code breaking. If you have some kind of cipher where letters are substituted, letter frequency is your easiest way in. Oh, sure. Right. Because if there's a ton of W's, that's probably W might be E right. know, or something like that. Whereas if there's no R's, maybe R is Q or Z. So, so etaoid shirdlu operates how? It just means E is the most common letter, followed by T, followed by A. And this, is, this goes back to the days of O-I-N-S-H-R-D-L-U. Those are the most common, I see. what is that, 11 letters. In that order. In that order. And uh, that's valuable to code breakers. I think the origin of that comes from the days when newspapers were set, when type was actually set with those lead slugs. Right. Right? Are, can, can you sort of picture this? Like, Absolutely. It's hard to imagine today when I'm sure, well, A, newspapers barely exist, and B, they're digital and you know, changes can be made on a word processor like that. But for a century or more, centuries, right? The London Times, I'm sure, goes back to the 17th century. You know, all text had to be set with little metal pieces with a reverse letter on it that you would set into some kind of tray, dip and, in ink. And so if you go to a, a, a classic old typesetter's foundry, would you find the etaoid Sherdlu letters in greater abundance? Yeah, there'd be more of them. And that's the order they would appear like in a, in a linotype machine. Oh. Like the, the, the drawers would be E-T-A-O-I. And like, ah. I, I guess just so that the more common letters would be closer to the operator. So this is not, this is not something from code breaking. This goes all the way back to typesetting. Yeah, I think it's, well, you know, you see it in both. But I, I first saw it in books about code. But when I looked it up, it turns out it is actually a thing from the world of old-timey newspapers. Because what would happen is, um, so anytime the operator would make a mistake, he or she would have to finish out that line and then delete it and start the line over, you know, because you've got a, a full line of text. You can't just fix it in the middle. You got to delete the whole line. And the quickest way to delete a whole line would be to just move up a letter from each of your drawers, apparently. And so what would happen is the dummy text that would get pushed in to fill out the line would say, Edoin Shirdlu. And uh, maybe Edoin Shirdlu, you know, maybe it would repeat. Right. And occasionally the setter would forget to get rid of the, the line with the error. So what would appear in the paper would be, uh, the mayor has told the city council, uh, and then council would be spelled wrong, and then it would say, and then the next line would say, the mayor told the city council. And people would be like, what is going on? You know, the newspaper is possessed by a demon. <laughs> so and it's like, lorem ipsum, lorem ipsum. It's uh, exactly lorem ipsum, which you should explain. Do, do people understand what lorem ipsum is? Certainly in the future, they will not. Are you, are you sure? Maybe all, uh, maybe all books are just lorem ipsum, lorem ipsum. <laughs> I don't know what, why they would print those books anymore. <laughs> like stage decoration, like the fake books on a... <laughs> yeah, or maybe they learned how to read them. They like books as decor, but not for their content. So lorem ipsum was like a, uh, it was like a kind of fake Latin placeholder text yes. that was used to test out typefaces or to dummy up a document to show how it was going to be laid out. You're showing, you're showing the client an ad or a layout or a packaging and you don't want to fill in all the little fiddly text. Right. You're just like, here's what it's going to look like. And there's this sort of standardized text in this weird sort of backwards, almost Latin. Um, I think it's real Latin. Where does it come from? Where does lorem ipsum come from? It's like taken from a, an ancient document, I think like, by Cicero, where it's just sort of scrambled. It's not like... Oh, it's not grammatically it's not correct Latin. It's not really legible. Cicero not, would be like, this is bull. You understand nothing about me and my work. Yeah, it's neither proper nor even like... It's not a text. It's just like they took some Cicero and they took the operative words out and replaced them with like adjectives. Which seems odd. If you just need dummy Greek or dummy Latin text, why not use actual Cicero? Yeah, I feel like... Um, I don't I, want to complain. Like, I have no idea, but lorem ipsum is like, um, is like a prime number in that you can, or rather like pi. People can memorize lorem ipsum out to a certain... There are lorem ipsum nerds because who, who, mem who compete at how much they've memorized lorem I'm ipsum? I'm not sure, although I bet there are, but it's like lorem ipsum dolor sit... Etc. Right, and it goes. You're apparently not very good at this. No, I'm bad. You've just created. <laughs> I'm bad. I can go. I can go four or five, but then it goes. I was woo! out at two. It goes on and on and on, and the reason that we know about it is that it's the same thing as you're saying uh, about the Edo and Shirdlu, which is that sometimes lorem ipsum makes it 
people forget to go back and fill in the proper text and it just gets published. Oops. I mean, I see it all the time because people are like, here, take a look at this. And it's Lorem Ipsum. I bet there's conspiracy theories about it. Like, what is this demonic incantation that keeps appearing? I'm sure. I'm uh, sure it's like the, uh, the elders of Zion, right? <laughs> like uh, Edda Ben Yasser or whatever. <laughs> so Edda Oin Shurdlu, now what, just really quickly, you were talking about an operator, a typesetting operator working at a keyboard. I always assumed that typesetting was manual manual type where they reached into a box, pulled out a letter and set it in a machine. Were there machines that did that? I think originally it was. Like, I think it's, you know, if you go back a few centuries, it's Benjamin Franklin lifting out individual right. uh, slugs with a letter on it printed backwards and setting it in a tray. Right. The line, machines like Linotype in the, I guess, maybe early 20th century, late mm-hmm. 19th century, speeded this up by giving the operator a keyboard. The letters would appear in frequency order. So they, you know, they would say Etta Oin Shirdlu on these buttons. And as every time he pushed a button, a system of levers would assemble these slugs, like I think with hot lead into a line of type huh. and then fit them into a mold. And, you know, every time he made a mistake, he would just take his finger and go <laughs> down the line of keys. <laughs> and, and, and that would edit or insured out oh, the line. That's wonderful. But if he forgot to get rid of that line of text and it went in the mold. Yeah, then... I get it. But we're getting pretty far afield from. Let's talk about Gadsby for a second. The observation that Ernest Vincent Wright made was that E was far and away the most abundant letter in written English. But, but, and he exaggerated to some degree in his, in his introduction to Gadsby, he says that the letter E appears five times more than any other letter, which is not close to true. What is the actual? Unless, unless you're saying Ellen DeGeneres, Ellen DeGeneres, <laughs> Renee Zellweger, Renee Zellweger. I mean, bees, bees, bees. <laughs> yeah, if you're running away from bees, there are five times as many E's as any other vowel. Cheese. <laughs> these bees are eating the cheese. See, but these are all things that cannot be said in the book Gadsby. His idea with Gadsby was to write a book of novel length, 50,000 words, you know, hundreds of thousands of letters that does not once contain the letter E, the most common letter in English. Why? He can use Y. <laughs> he just can't use the letter. It's funnier every time. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout what other than it just i mean is it just a simple stunt or did he have a theory it's not clear why he wanted to write a very long book, which I'm sure took him months or years, years, I believe, without a single letter E. It seems to be something along the lines of, uh, you know, George Mallory wanting to climb Everest, a mountain he could not mention, right? Uh, because it was there. You know, he thought this would be a very hard thing. In the introduction to the book, he talks about all the people who have told him he cannot do this. In the introduction, he says, I received one most scathing epistle from a lady woman, I guess to him, there's a difference <laughs> denouncing me as a quote, genuine fake that paradox being a most interesting one mm. and ending by saying, everyone knows that such a feat is impossible. All right. Then the impossible has been accomplished. Duh. So apparently this guy lived in a, a bizarre social bubble where people were constantly telling him you can't write a novel without ease. That, that old saw Fool. That, that we always say. And he's like, I'll show you, madam. As, as was the style <laughs> of the time, people were constantly telling him you cannot write a letter. 
And well, he would say, yes, I can, madam. And they would say, well, I never, you know, like <laughs> all the ladies of the sewing circle would fan themselves. This was the thing that they said at the beginning of the school day to all children. <laughs> now, remember, children, you cannot write a novel without the letter E. For some reason, we all speak in this bizarre New England traveling salesman accent. <laughs> and he was a little kid. And he was like, I'll show them one day. <laughs> one day they'll all learn. Yeah, like he could have been the Unabomber. But as the process of writing the book went on over years, um, he appears to have really uh, taken it very personally. He developed a very personal animosity against the letter E. Hmm. He, uh, you know, to make sure he did it, he would tie down the letter E on his keyboard. Right. To who, make sure. Who doesn't? To make sure <laughs> that no E's accidentally snuck into the uh, manuscript. In the introduction, he says, as I wrote along in longhand at first, so he started in longhand and then found it was too hard and switched to the, to the disabled typewriter. typewriter. Yeah. A whole army of little E's gathered around my desk. He's having hallucinations, all eagerly expecting to be called upon. But, gra <laughs> but gradually, as they saw me writing on and on without even noticing them, they grew uneasy. This is a laudanum dream. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's imagining the letters <laughs> dancing gaily around. He's been sucking on lead type, I think. And with excited whisperings amongst themselves, began hopping up and writing on my pen, looking down constantly for a chance to drop off into some word, for all the world, like seabirds perched, waiting for a passing fish. The horror. But when they, they saw that I had covered 138 pages of typewriter-sized paper, they slid off onto the floor, walking sadly away arm in arm, but shouting back, you certainly must have a hodgepodge of a yarn there without us. Why, man, we are in every story ever written hundreds of thousands of times. This is the first time we ever were shut out. So it's not just the lady. Right. He's actually defeated the E itself. He is angry at the fifth letter in the English alphabet. Wow, those poor, like... Ease. They're not poor. They're privileged. They're the majority. I suppose. You know, he sees them as overrepresented in the literary world, and he's trying to introduce diversity He's, he's in the there. form of A's and O's and I's. <laughs> he's sitting in his chair, like, covered with ease, but somehow immune to them. They're sliding down his pencil. They're in his ear. They're ease everywhere. He's checking the mattresses when he checks into hotels to see if there are little teeny E's in the seat. He's got the DTs with ease. <laughs> and yet somehow he shakes them off. It is an actual literary genre, a word he could never use, uh, called the lipogram. A lipogram is a, any kind of literary construction that does not use certain letter or letters. What? Really? There are other things like this? This isn't just this man's personal following? It goes back to the ancient Greeks. Uh, there's a poet named Trifiodorus that wrote a version of the Odyssey where the first, it was 24 stanzas. The first one does not have any alphas. The second one does not have any betas. The huh. third one's not, so he goes on down the line and omits one letter per stanza. So, th it's so an, there's an ancient tradition of goofing around like this. There's something about this that appeals to me mightily, right? In, in the sense of it being a kind of OCD way of sorting things into boxes and giving yourself impossible challenges. You do like sorting things into to boxes, but you're also a writer. Do you ever have this kind of, uh, you know, you create constraints for yourself or you think of it as trying to solve a puzzle when you're trying to think of the next rhyme or the next chord. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Jonathan Colton and I made a Christmas album a couple of years ago. And before we even began, we went down and made a list of all the words we weren't going to use. Ah. Cheer, joy, merry. Like we took out all of the, the words that we thought were your Christmas tropes, your Christmas fallback words, and said, we will never say merry. Nothing, there's nothing merry if, there, if something merry happens in one of these songs, we have to find a different way to describe it. And it was a great challenge. You know, you, it got us off of our, of our, uh, of our high knees. Well, I put all this year's presents on uh, my credit card and kind of went overboard. But by this time next year, my podcast will be earning serious money. One Christmas at a time, baby. One Christmas at a time. It's the first lipogrammatic Christmas album. Let's hope. I would think. Right. Although it's not, we never said like, let's not use the word, well, let's not use the letter Y. That's uh, a little harder. It's a little harder. Why? <laughs> I remember uh, I, I had the pleasure of talking to Weird Al once, mm -hmm. and he said this was one of the great pleasures of his work was that he thought of the whole thing as a puzzle. You know, he would listen to the original song and he would think, you know, how do I maintain everything about the rhythm and even the vowel sound, you know, how do I, and, but yet add in jokes Right. That are also about this topic I've chosen, the Amish or riding the bus or eating ham or, you know, whatever Weird Al's muse is that day. Yeah. You know, and he thought of it like doing a crossword. And I've heard Stephen Sondheim say the same thing, you know, that that's, 
that's what appeals to him about it. It makes makes the creativity into a game. To the to futurelings who aren't familiar, perhaps unfamiliar, uh, Stephen Sondheim and Weird Al Yankovic were the two pillars of uh, of like contemporary music in our time. Weird Al, you know, every child in our day has an, a Weird Al accordion mm-hmm. at their home. Weird Al is the most popular Halloween costume. He's the leading musical figure of our time. He's he's epical. He invented nerd culture, which we all live in now. He actually, there's actually some truth to that, that Weird Al did sort of invent the modern era. <laughs> the funny thing is he got less nerdy. As nerd stuff became mainstream, he got LASIK. He got rid of the glasses. Yeah. He straightened his hair. He doesn't quite look like He doesn't wear like the a, Hawaiian shirts anymore. Not quite a normal person, but he does, he's approximating. Yeah. One. He's more like new age guru than disgruntled Radio Shack employee or whatever his 80s look was. Yeah. He still feels like somebody that if you, if you went into a store and he was there working, you would... Talk to the other guy. <laughs> or you, yeah, you'd be like, check around, check the exits. <laughs> so you told me about Gatsby and I went and, uh, as is my want, tried to read Gatsby. You have perused Gatsby. I began Gatsby and tried to digest it. And it was, I think it would be for anyone, a, a really unusual experience because looking at a page of Gatsby, any page, just at a distance, just just sort of scanning it, looks wrong. The absence... Really? You can, visually, there's a... The absence of the E, just at a quick scan, makes the page seem like it isn't text, but is like a formula, almost, in, in my eye and in my mind. It looked mathematical, or it looked like computer code. It or did, something. or it looked like it looked like a list of words rather than... Ah. sentences because without, and you, it's It's a scrabble dictionary or something. Yeah. I couldn't have looked at it and said, oh, there aren't any E's here. It just looked like a foreign language. Ah, that's interesting. In, in just scanning. And then to read it in order to write an entire novel without E's, he had to find synonyms for every common word. Think about the challenges of this. You know, he, uh, you know, you can't say any number from six to 30, you know, you're, you're limited to plot. The. You, right. You, you can't use the past tense. You can't say Gadsby walked. You have to say Gadsby did walk. And yeah, so the book's full of these kind of circumlocutions. Like he calls turkey a Thanksgiving national bird. Right. Because he literally can't use the word turkey. He has to describe a wedding without using the words bride, cake, wedding, marriage. You know, like almost any word you would want to use is off the table. And it's a he's trying to write kind of a young adult novel or it's a, it's a coming of age novel. Like you say, it's, yeah, it's sort of a, it seems like a Sinclair Lewis kind of thing about right. a small American town in decline where this young go-getter, John Gadsby tries to create a, a, a youth organization to get the city behind it and, yeah, and, and growing again. And there's a city council that personifies a sort of old curmudgeonly group of stuck in their ways, people that stand athwart the youth you know, but then what the, like the grouchiest city council person ends up kind of having a, a middle age transformation and becomes young and vital again. It doesn't sound like the literary equal of the great Gatsby, but no. I, I understand that it's not bad. Like it, it's, it's more than just a, an exercise of uh, it's more than just a magic trick, right? Like it works as a book. Well, so as you're reading at first, the syntax is so garbled by virtue of this circumlocution you're talking about and just the lack of common words that at first it's like, this isn't writing. This is just, it's, it's just gibberish, right? Or, or you know what it does? It reads like, it reads like a letter to the editor from a crazy person. <laughs> you know, you see the, and I get these letters sometimes from people where they're just like, dear sir, I had a, I listened to your show and I have some comments and then it's That's like, why I love doing this show for the people in the future. They well, have, they have no way to reach us. See, the people in the future have to, futurelings have to acknowledge that in my own time, I'm a very famous person and people are writing me all the time. Sure. They're going to have to imagine a world in which they are uh, clicking their mandibles at length at, right. at, at something they're angry at, but they cannot use the most common click pattern or, or wh- whatever their means of communication is. They're, right. they're, they're hobbled. Well, yeah, they're psionic, like mind melding with one another. They would have to put some sort of piece of cardboard in between certain portions of their collective consciousness. Sure, or, or just have somebody bang on a pan really loudly so they can't think about whatever the most common images they're trying to transmit. But but in reading it, once you get into the rhythm, like so many weird uh, Unabomber manifestos, <laughs> once you get into the rhythm of the writer's thinking, 
it became a pretty enjoyable little jaunt. You're essentially learning a new language. Yeah. You're learning a new language that does not have the letter E in it. You know, we might, we can't call it English. We'll call it Anglo-Saxon. Right. But once you learn to speak that in your head. And so things like our great national, or our, uh, you couldn't even say great national bird. National Thanksgiving bird. Our national Thanksgiving bird. Things like that start to disappear. They don't seem, it doesn't seem tortured because you're within, you're within the world of the novel. And I found myself engaged and pottering along. And, and, and it's not that the story had that many awesome twists and turns, but I was, I enjoyed the characters and was following their adventures. But, but, it, but if I stepped away, if I went and got a cup of coffee and came back to it. Expecting English. Again, you, yeah, right. I had to rewire my brain a little bit to read in this foreign language. Well, let's see if your brain has been rewired. Can you and I do a portion of our podcast that omits that fifth symbol of our ABCs. Hmm. <clears throat> hmm is okay. Our show is a <laughs> good <laughs> uh, way of is a way of what john you cannot say my first uh word <laughs> i say first word that <laughs> that humans identify ooh my identify has an e <gasps> oh I'm out. Sorry, pal. You win not. <laughs> <laughs> it is truly hard. See. <laughs> that's what that girl said. You can't say that's what she said. No, that's what that girl said. Yeah, there's whole, there's whole things you can't say. You have to spend eight words trying to say one word. It's like when you learn another language, but you're not that great at it, but you're trying to, you know, you're enough to be more than beyond phrases. You, you can talk, but not fluidly. I think if I sat at a typewriter. Without the, with the letter E taped <clears throat> down. Well, or even with the E there glaring at me, I feel like I could find my way through sentences without the letter E. It's just that so many vowel sounds imitate one another that at least as I'm sitting and thinking, I'm like. Is that an E? Yeah, I'm hearing E's. It's true, you have to picture the word in your head. Yeah, and that's much more difficult than if I was sitting at a typewriter and just able to kind oh. of try and start working on my novel. You know, I actually, uh, when I was sitting bored in college class, and I hadn't thought about this till last night when I was reading Gatsby, I actually spent some time, you're going to think this is either incredibly cool or dumb. I predict dumb. Uh -huh. Writing a version of of Star Wars that only uses the letter A. Already I do think it's dumb. All the characters have to have... At, 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 at. You can't say a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. You'd have to say far, far back, athwart vast, far apart stars. Say now what... So what is your... What's your project? The only vowel that you can use is A. This oh, is five I times see. harder than anything Ernest the Vincent Wright ever only tried. Only vowel you can use is A. Right. You have all your consonants. I see. So instead of... um. You know, you, you can't call, you can't say Darth Vader. You have to call him, you know, a gas mask clad dastard. Uh, you how, know, how, Skywalker uh, is a gallant lad. How much time did you spend on this project? Han Solo is a sharp scalawag. So where did you, where did you get this idea and how long did you work on this? Obi-Wan Kenobi is a kaftan clad astral savant. I'm really glad you're reliving it, but. R2-D2, interestingly, is R2-D2. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I think it was when I realized that you know, the title Star Wars has only A's in it. So, you know, it's crying out for this E-I-O-N-U-less adaptation. And Y, no Y's as, as vowels. Could you say C-3PO with O being a zero? I remember looking into this and it seems like the O in C-3PO is usually an O, not a zero, which oh. means he's out. You'd have to call him Brass Apparata Man or right. something. I suppose you could just say 3P-0. C-3P-0. <laughs> yes, you call him. Well, you know, uh, Wright did not cheat like that. You know, he, he said, people are going to say that I'm just going to put in apostrophes. Right. I'm not going to put in apostrophes. That's right. So he doesn't use... He doesn't even use Mr. and Mrs. Because he thinks if you were to expand them... Right. 
you know, Mr. And Mistress would have an E. Oh, I love the fact that he is so, he, he guards against any criticism of his like, legacy. He presumes the worst in people. It is a Fifty Shades of Grey thing where he wants to suffer a little. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start that's unlimited access to thousands of lessons exercises and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks just go to musician.com slash start that's y-o-u-s-i-c-i-a-n.com slash start so what was the reception in his time sadly uh, even though the associated press picked up the news his press release that he was writing such a book he could not find a publisher interested he published it through a Vanity Press in 1939. Vanity Press means he paid to have all the copies printed. And then the Wetzel Publishing Warehouse burned down shortly after the book was released. Oh, oh, no. And Wright himself, I think, died just two months later. In some accounts, he dies the next day after the book is released, you know, having finished his great opus. But I think in real life, I, I looked him up last night, and it looks to me like he died. In, you can find him in census records and in death records. He, it looks like he dies a couple days after the book comes out. Are there any extant copies? Very few. Uh, because of the warehouse fire, if you find a copy of Gatsby now in our time, your distant past listeners, it's worth between four and $7,000. Wow. In the future, it's probably invaluable. You should be pawing through the wreckage of libraries. It may be the things that they keep in their future Fort Knoxes to, uh, right. to bolster their economies. Instead of stacks of bullion, there's all 108 extant copies <laughs> of Gatsby. So how did this historical uh, blip make it onto our radar? How did it even survive as a story, as a curiosity? It's interesting. There, there must have been enough copies and people sort of vaguely remembering the news blurbs about this weird guy that it, it kind of made it into the Ripley's Believe It or Not part of our culture where we're interested in oddballs and eccentrics. Uh-huh. And interestingly, in the 50s and 60s, a French literary school called Ulipo, who were interested in verbal and mathematical games, uh, sort of stumbled upon Wright's work and, and took him as sort of their urtext. Uh, he was their hero. And so they would produce works in, inspired by him. Uh, Georges Perec, a French author, wrote a book called La Disparition, or uh, it's been translated in English as Avoid, which just like Gadsby uses no letter E. It's sort of a noir detective thing about three friends trying to find a mysterious missing man named Anton Vowell, V-O-W-L. And over the course of the book, they become aware that what's missing is the letter E, but they can't express this or confront this because if they do, they, they'll concede their whole universe falls apart. Right. So um, they can never come to terms with what exactly is missing. And did any of these universe. literary fans ever republish his book? Gadsby? Yeah. I think Gadsby has never been back in print. So it, it's just It's there. in the public domain now. Right. Uh, nobody re- renewed the copyright in, you know, after a few decades. But yeah, there's a whole school of literary games that have come up sort of in the spirit of Ernest Vincent Wright. The, um, the Ulipo people played a game called N plus seven, where they would take a poem and they would replace all the nouns in the poem with a noun, seven nouns ahead in the dictionary to produce, <laughs> to produce a crazy new poem. Well, so now this does get into code breaking. This seems like some kind of, I mean, you could, yes. you, you could legitimately turn this into a code. Yeah. And I think that's, that was sort of the interest to them. They loved sort of the mathematical basis of, or, you know, that gray area between words and numbers. Although you, everyone would have to be, everyone would have to use the same dictionary. It's true. So instead of saying, you know, the William Carlos Williams poems, but this is just to say, I have eaten the plums that were in the icebox. I have here a dictionary from the Omnibus Reference Library. Yes. Here in the, the bunker. You're going to rewrite William Carlos Williams now using the Poe school? Yeah, N plus seven. I guess instead of uh, I have eaten the plums, we have to go seven nouns beyond plum. plum. So that would be 
plum with a B, plumber, plume, plunder mm-hmm. can be a noun, plunger, plunger, pluralism. We're getting close. Plush. I have eaten the plush. This is just to say, I have eaten the plush that we're in the, and then we have to go seven words past. Icebox. Icebox. I love eating plush, by the way. It's probably going to be something that starts with ice. Icebreaker, ice cap, ice cream, ice dancing, ice fall, ice field, ice flow. Ice flow. I have eaten the plush out of the ice flow. And there you go. See how, see how that's better? It is. Well, it's good. I like it. We have to, at some point, you have to confront the fact that not all constraints improve art. No, that's true. In fact, one of the reactions in our own time to political upheaval, uh, including our recent, most recent political upheaval, was to say that it was going to inspire a generation of artists. Ah, that's an interesting point. Because they now had something to push against. They had, they had real strife and trouble after years of complacency. That's just desperate rabble-rousers looking for a silver lining. Yeah. Like, well, at least we'll get the great Donald Trump <laughs> novel. Which has yet to emerge. Yeah, and and and, I, and uh, a good friend of mine, Allison Gertz, was quoted as saying, "Like, where are all the great, where are all the great artists we were promised?" But it really only has been six months. So, but no. I, don't, but I don't know if there's a much evidence that you know what's the great art that came out of Hitler, for example. I mean, there's a couple great Holocaust novels, I guess. But wouldn't you rather, when it came down to it, just not have the Holocaust than to have Elie Wiesel? I think it. I think Elie Wiesel true. himself would probably agree. I think that that idea came about as a result of um, of people trying to reduce like bullying in the schools, and everyone pointed to artists who had grown up like ah. being victimized and brutalized by people, and saying, "If you take away bullying, you never who- <laughs> you never get John Keats." <laughs> yeah, right. If you take away child abuse, how are you ever going to get a hard, a long day's journey in tonight? That's my argument for alcoholism. You know. <laughs> Like, you're never going to have Hemingway or Kerouac or whatever. Charles Bukowski, so drink up, everybody. (laughs) But, you know, there are cases where, like, in essence, the whole field of poetry is about constraints, you know, producing beauty, not just because it sounds nice to our ear when, you know, two lines rhyme, but just because the poet has to go down interesting mental avenues to, you know, I want to say something about autumn, but the word has to rhyme with uh, time. Sodom. (laughs) (laughs) That poem just took a dark turn. How lucky. Fortuitously, bottom and bottom rhyme, so things are getting good. Well, I, you know, I think uh, when I think about the literary arts, right, the shorter novel is a higher form, I think, than the longer novel in a way. Like as a reader, the short story, I think, is a higher form than the novel. The poem is a higher form than the short story, and at the very top is the pop song. So you're saying you probably think this recording has gone a little long, right? Any. Any podcast longer than Be My Baby by the Ronettes is like, you know, a waste of time. I, you know, constraints, I was thinking a lot about uh, constraints in the movies because that's a field where I I feel like I know a lot of behind the scenes anecdotes and a lot of great art really did come out of just something going terribly wrong. Like, uh, well, sure. Like the, the robot shark in Jaws, they couldn't get it to work. That's exactly what I'm thinking of. Like the shark doesn't famously does not appear until 90 minutes into Jaws. And then it really makes an impact the few times you see it. Right. And everyone says Spielberg, what a genius to withhold the villain. But it was just that he couldn't get the thing to work. Yeah. They had a robot shark called Bruce and it sucked. Like (laughs) it turned out you got water in the gears. And there's a similar case. uh, There's another Spielberg example in Raiders of the Lost Ark. There's that famous scene where, uh, Indiana Jones, he's an action hero of our time, uh, futurelings. Uh, gets faced by an expert swordsman in Cairo and Indy just pulls out his gun and shoots the guy. Do you know the story here? No. I mean, it's one of my, uh, when I saw the movie as a kid, it was highly influential. Boy, you could hear every kid in the place cheer. You've been shooting swarthy swordsmen ever (laughs) Ever since. since. No, yeah, it's an indelible scene in the movie. And it was, in fact, there was supposed to be a very elaborate sword fight there between Indy and this guy, I think whip and sword fight. But on the day, Harrison Ford had diarrhea. Like he was, he was terribly sick to his stomach and couldn't do the whole elaborate fight. No. So they were like, what if he just shoots the guy? <laughs> so the, the constraint of, uh, of diarrhea gives you great art. That's wonderful. Well, I, in my own writing, like I, I realize so often that I use the word that, that is a classic example of a word that in almost every instance, in a field of text, if you just take the word that out, it will be better writing. You can take the word that 
out of almost any sentence. You need to tape down the that key on you your do. keyboard. You do. If I, if I could just write a script that just went through every text and took out all the that's, writing would be better. That, interestingly, is one of the common words that Ernest Vincent Wright did have at his disposal. He could use that quite a bit and did. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. He could not use the. He also, it, it read a little bit like the Odyssey in that it had these reappearing fragments, you know, like wine, dark sea or whatnot. Right. Because every time he tries to say ocean or whatever. Right. He has to use, basically he found a way to say it and he has to use it again. Or, but, uh, but also it had a little bit of Kipling, like sort of my best beloved, the way that Kipling kind of throws in this little rhythmic sort of phrase. It's more like an orally told story because yeah. it's got these odd quirks that you don't usually see in written writing. Yeah. And partly because he doesn't, uh, whatever the enormous constraint is of not being able to use the letter E had to be compensated for by developing a different literary style. Ah, he's like the blind man. Yeah. Who's all his other senses have to. He's like, I've just have to figure out a way to convey mood. And some of that is that he started putting together little turns of phrase that reappeared. That's a lot of what artists do in general. It's, it's how we all make our way through the world. We realize the things we can't do and. We make them obvious, you know, we, we make them, turn them from a bug into a feature. Sure. It's why you hear bass solos in so many, uh, so many live re recordings. Cause it's like, <laughs> oh boy, what do we do now? Bass solo. Everybody else goes and has a cigarette. Wright was a musician, actually. Uh, I don't know if that interests you as it a It doesn't musician. surprise me, actually. He, uh, almost all the biographical stuff you read about him was wrong. They say he was from England, but you can see in census records, he was born in Boston they say he went to MIT, but in fact, he went to some MIT vocational school for high schoolers, like uh -huh. two years of carpentry. And I, I don't think there's even any record that he graduated. Right. It's um, like those kids that go to summer uh, session at Harvard. <laughs> right. And then they end up going to Penn State. I'm going to summer camp in Boston. <laughs> there, uh, his usual bio says that he was in the Navy. But in fact, I found his uh, request for a military headstone. Last night I was poking around online. I found his request for a military headstone at his death. And it says he was actually in the Naval Reserve and his rank is listed as musician. Really? So apparently his military career is limited to does that mean, being in a brass band, I guess. Does that mean that I'm in the Naval Reserve? Because my rank is musician too. I don't think all, it goes to go the other way. Oh, Maybe you said that didn't surprise you. Do you, do you find that? Uh, well, because music is math. Ah. And musicians are, always have a sort of different relationship to math. A lot of them aren't even aware Certainly in my world of musicians who are largely self-taught, a lot of them aren't aware that they're playing with math, but they have those tendencies. Um, and the better musicians are always playing with time in a way that that's mathematically playful. But it's interesting to me that Wright is kind of the opposite of that kind of intuitive genius in a lot of ways. You know, he doesn't just have uh, an idea, he wants a, a mood about youth he wants to communicate or whatever. He has a very specific and artificial idea. Well, this is the thing about musicians because there are the groovy ones who are just grooving. I don't even know what my left hand's doing, man. Well, doop, doop, doop. But then there are... Eight-minute guitar solo. There are all these musicians that are like Robert Fripp or Geddy Lee who are um, making music that's counterintuitive, that's not necessarily just flowing out of them, but is based on on a premise. Like I have a song where I tried to write one song that used or incorporated every time signature. And you're, so you're Ernest Vincent, right? I start in two, four, I go to three, four, I go to four, four, I go to five, four, I go to seven, four, I go to six, eight, you know, like, and I just move through the time signatures and also try to make it sound like a song and not just a thought experiment. And what's the reason for that? Fun. I mean, I, what I like about time signatures is that when you switch from one to another, it's a palpable bump in excitement. When you go from 4-4 four, four to 5-4, if you can make that transition feel natural to the listener because they're following the lyrics and they're following the kind of swing that you're giving it, and then all of a sudden there's an extra beat, um, it's very exciting, and, and the listener doesn't know why. And that's very analogous to Gatsby, where, you know, you might lose the fact of the E-less prose, but you still have some sense that something interesting is, is goosing the writing yeah. and producing effects you've never seen before. If he had published the book without mentioning that there weren't any E's in it, 
if he had just said, here's my new novel, Gadsby. It's, it's about youth in America. You're going to love it. I wonder if it would have been a different thing. I mean, certainly somebody at the Times Literary Supplement would have said, I say, there are no E's. Somebody would have figured it out. But if people started to read it without that little hook. Yeah, yeah what if he gets praised as some kind of eccentric outsider artist with the weirdest ear ever? Yeah, and like, then a couple years later, everyone's like, no, no, wait a second. There's just no ease. <laughs> like, what a strange writer. He's what an interesting fraud. voice. In conclusion, I guess I should say that uh, Gatsby is not even perfect of its kind. Today, now there's a digital copy. You can search for the letter E, which I did. And there are four flaws. No. He, uh, he put the word the in three times without noticing. And then towards the end of the book, the word officers appears. Oh. So he came four E's away oh. from perfection. Oh, that, that pains me. Maybe it makes it better. You know, like the thing about the, uh, the Bedouin weaver who puts, a, who puts a purposeful imperfection in his, the carpet he's weaving so that, you know, God alone remains perfect. Well, I, do you think that it was purposeful, though? Absolutely not. Yeah. The, the scotch tape on his, on his eek, he just slipped. He just lost his, yeah. I'm I, glad he died never knowing this because no one hated the letter E more than Ernest Vincent Wright. So those E's that were climbing on his pencil, that were up in his hair. He went to make a sandwich. Four of them slid down and got on that page. Slid down the pen and got in. And all those other E's that were down on the floor cursing at him. But his hit rate was good. You know, that's a, that, that book has, what, 200, 250,000 letters probably. Four E's. Four E's. That's a pretty good batting average. Well, but it still remains to futurelings in time immemorial an unfinished task. Can you write an entire youth novel without an E? Turns out Ernest Vincent Wright could not. And that concludes Gadsby, entry number 511.PS6928, certificate number 6442 in the omnibus. In the unlikely event, Futurelings, that social media is still a way that people hassle one another and communicate with each other and yell at each other about things that no one has any real idea about. Our tweets are archived collectively at Omnibus Project. Our individual handles were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick, and I have an Instagram account under that same name. If there is a time traveler preparing a capsule in your time, make it that that time traveler emails us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. What a waste of a tesseract that would be. Listeners, from our vantage point in what is to you the distant past, we have survived the ultimate macroaggression, a civilization-ending catastrophe. We hope and pray that will never happen, but this whole enterprise exists in anticipation of a day when this will be necessary. And we don't know when that will be. If the worst comes soon, this recording about a strange man who hated the letter E could be our last word. But we hope that's not true. We hope that Providence allows us to be with you again soon for yet another entry in the Omnibus.